Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This episode is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync featuring hands-free calling, music and podcast search, and turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit syncmyride.com. This week on the show, is face detection racist, 128-gigabyte compact flashcards, and an interview with Andy Biggs right here on This Week in Photography, number 126. And we're back for another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show... We have some very interesting people. First up, I want to say hello to Nicole Young, who is joining us again. She's not been on the show all year. That's right. Welcome back, Nicole. Thanks, Frederick. It's good to be back. What's been going on in your world? I've uh, been taking a lot of pictures and blogging. Very cool. What's your, mm-hmm. your blog is NicoleZBlog.com, right? Yeah, that's right. Very cool. Well, welcome back to the show. Thanks. And also on the show again, who hasn't been on for a week or so, is Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello, hello. What's going on? What's going on in uh, Southern California? Anything exciting? It's, it's finally stopped raining, so we're back to sunshine. Very cool. And here, as usual, operating the wheels of steel is Mr. Alex Lindsay. They're actually titanium now. They're titanium. We've upgraded. Steel is. Uh, steel is so last century. Steel is so Detroit. Right? <laughs> I didn't say that. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're moving to titanium. titanium. Yes. All right. Uh, well, we have a really exciting show today, um, and uh, uh, there's so much stuff to talk about, but we're going to jump right into it. First off, I want to give a nod out to our sponsor, though. Alex, who's our sponsor? We'd like to thank, of course, Sync. Uh, TWIP is brought to you by Sync. Uh, voice-activated Sync is uh, exclu- a system exclusively available for Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. Uh, of course, Sync listens to your voice. So without using your hand, you can make phone calls uh, to your mobile phone. You can uh, find and play music and podcasts, get turn-by-turn navigation, and even access real-time traffic uh, and weather. So uh, Sync is supporting the TWIP's uh, coverage of CES. You've probably have seen some of the videos that we're putting out uh, for CES to, uh, 2010. So all all this month, you're going to see uh, more uh, videos that we shot, uh, both uh, at This Week in Photography as well as Mac Break Video. So make sure to subscribe to the Twip Podcast and Mac Break Video to uh, see everything that we covered at, uh, at CES. And thanks to the Voice Activated Sync for their support of our CEI, CES, CEI, CES coverage. And uh, you can get more details at uh, SyncMyRide.com. That's SyncMyRide.com. And everyone should go up there because it makes us look cool. Makes us look really cool. Are you? Uh, have you gotten a chance to ride in Leo's? I have. It is awesome. Really? It is awesome. He's got a logo that like it's, he's got his own logo. Being look- able to put a logo on the video screen of your car is cool enough by itself. And and you know, there's just he you know he loves to show it off, and it's really awesome. cool. is is the logo animated? No, at least the one, the one that I saw that wasn't, wasn't it. But but the, the the thing is is that it is it does feel very Jetsons you know when, when you're doing it, mm-hmm. and um, it, it it definitely you know I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Let's uh, let's jump into the news because we have uh, a couple of interesting things to talk about that I'm actually really excited to talk about. The first thing is, uh, as most weeks, you know, Fred is kind of like, "Oh, do we have to talk about that again?" Yeah. Cameras. This week, are we going to talk about cameras this yeah, week? Cameras are so. Come on. It's all about 
digital SLR video. No. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm stand down, Crib audience. Stand down. I'm kidding. <laughs> we ain't going. We're not talking about your video today. We're talking about, we're talking about uh, racist, racist cameras, though. Racist? So, you know, there was, there's been a lot cameras. of racist things. <laughs> yeah, why are all cameras black? I don't get it. <laughs> And why are the expensive Canon lenses white? I don't get it. Oh. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To the audience, I'm kidding. So, so, so here's the story. So here's the story. It, this is this is all this all has to do with the face detection cameras. So a lot. You know, Alex puts us back on the. I'm, I'm, I'm like, let's just, we're just going to tip the truck back up onto the onto the rail here onto the onto the road here. So the. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, these are all of these cameras, whether you're looking at, um, you know, HP or Nikon or Sony, they all have these facial recognition stuff and they're, and they're adding all this. This is the next feature that they're adding. That, that's, you know, the next cool thing. So that at first, what we saw is they may be able to track people's faces and now they're being able to tell when people are theoretically when they're smiling or when they're blinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, there's been some issues. Yeah. Apparently, apparently Asian people are always blinking according to these cameras. <laughs> so they get when they when you and this is not all of the cameras, there's just some of these like some of the HP and the Nikon and even the Sony cameras when you when you take a photo with it and they the camera is trying to detect whether the person blinked or not so that you can presumably take another shot. Uh, <laughs> it's saying that that it's given the error that these that some Asian people are, are blinking. And to get it to stop on some of these tests, they had they to kind of open their eyes. like, like they... Yeah, like they were in complete <laughs> shock in order for, for <laughs> it to work. And now what the article brings up, which we'll put in the show notes, what the article brings up and is that oh, a couple of things, but one of them is that Sony, for example, is an Asian company. Exactly. So and who did they test this on? Yeah, who are they testing this on? And, you know, so what do you, what do you guys think about that? Because there's also... There's also the, the African-American thing. So it's saying they wouldn't even register darker skin tones at all. So apparently people with lighter skin tones with round eyes, they could see. But anybody else just wouldn't count for these cameras. We, Nicole, what do you think? Well, I think, and it kind of mentioned this in the article, that it's more of an issue of them not thoroughly testing the actual cameras before they put them on the market. They're, they're so excited by this technology that they're just like, well, let's put it out there. And not realizing, you know, that, well... Some people might not fit in the actual, you know, little model that they use to test all, you know, test their cameras on. So yeah, they got one guy in a room. <laughs> yeah. let's, go t- let's go test it on James over there. <laughs> oh, it works. Okay, ship it. Right. And that's exactly it. This this kind of thing. I, I was peripherally involved with this when I was at Apple too for some of the stuff that made its way into, uh, I guess, iPhoto so far. Um, but the you know, the way to do this is you come up with your base algorithms, but then you just have to run it against a whole bunch of different things to kind of decide. Because all it's doing is measuring certain things, right? And it's sort of figuring out this is probably eyes, this is probably face, this is probably the relationships of eyes to nose to mouth, and so that's probably, you know, a face. And eventually you get to, that's probably this person's face when you get to the face detection. And, yeah, if you don't run this across a really large sample group, then you don't know what the, the boundaries are for it. So it's it just, you know. It seems like it needs to be that large of a sample group, though. I mean, it seems like it's like... You know, there's, there's, I mean, yeah, there's tons of different kinds of faces out there, of course, but there's not that many races that, you know, that are so radically different from another that you couldn't load the database with, say, six, (laughs) you know, six instead of one, you know, is what I'm getting at. I don't know. It it sure sounds like that would be an intelligent thing to do, but having worked at big companies, it's surprising how often this kind of stuff goes through. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and, and it really is. I know that when uh, you really have to think about what you're shooting. Like, I know when I shoot in Africa, when I have subjects that have darker complexion, when you're shooting out in a sunny area, uh, it is a different problem. It's a different mm-hmm. problem to shoot, you know, because you're not worried about, typically with, uh, you know, lighter skin, for instance, you're, you're, you're worried about overexposing the skin outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you expose, pro- when you properly expose, you know, darker complexion, then the whole background looks you know, blown out. Yeah. Which is pretty, by the way, uh, if you're shooting in those areas, it's a really cool effect. I mean, it really, if you really shoot that complexion well, mm-hmm. I shot some photos outside of Mishvingo, Zimbabwe that were just, it was uh, surreal. You know, it was really, really cool. So it's definitely worth playing with. Yeah, try try shooting black folks in the snow. Gonna, exactly. Well, yeah, you're you know, gonna get the snow with the people. You know, it's like <laughs> it's it's a it's a wardrobe a little trick that wardrobe always uses on movie sets too is that you will rarely see white shirts, even though they're supposed to look like somebody's wearing a white shirt. Uh, yeah. Generally, they are dyed to be this sort of gray tone shirt, and then the DP has, you know, doesn't have to fight against this huge dynamic range and can kind of expose it for white, but keep everything else in the shot. And that's particularly important if you're shooting uh, scenes that have, you know, darker tone, skin tone people in it. You very often will adjust wardrobe to and make I, sure you can do this. And I also think that for a lot of people, I mean, these are things that you see on the feature set when you buy the camera, and I think a lot of people don't use them. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So presumably yeah. we all have digital or uh, point and shoot cameras. I have, have the stuff. Yeah. You know, do you guys ever use these these functions in there, like the face detection and the the red eye and all that crazy stuff? Like, no. Nicole, do you do you no. use anything like that in there? If I have it in my camera, I don't know it because I don't use it. Yeah. yeah. What do you like? If what which what point and shoot do you have right now? I I have a Nikon Coolpix. I have it right in front of me too. Where does it say? P fifty one hundred. No. So it's it's a older it's one of the older ones not really old but not the newer fancy ones. What mode do you have it set on normally when you shoot? Um, right now, I, well, I usually set it on either aperture mm-hmm. or shutter speed. Yep. Or if I know it, I you know if I'm doing some funky stuff, then I'll throw it on manual. Yeah. What so. about you, Ron? Do you have a you have a point and shoot? Yeah, yeah, I've got the the Lumix LX3. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, you know, when I'm shooting with it, it's the same set of settings that I have on my SLR instead of the aperture priority, typically. Mm-hmm. You know, the one time it does get used is if I hand this camera over to somebody and tell them to shoot, you know, somebody else or shoot me or something like that. Uh, I'll just, you know, click the dial over to the auto, full auto, full, you know, everything setting. And at that point, yeah, I'm sure some of these types of functionality may kick in on some cameras. But, you know, not, not the typical shooting method for me. Alex... You're not a you're not a point and shooter guy, are you? You're like five D Mark II. Well, I, I you know I have I have an LX three, and yeah. so I, I you know so I, I do I do keep that in my pocket most of the time, um, and I fire lots of behind the scenes photos and behind the scenes movies with it, and it's kind of like this just the thing that I carry around the most, and, and I'm actually looking in the market for getting a new one um, just because I really like the LX three. Uh, my problem with it primarily is that it's uh, a little too bulky, you know, for what I use it for. You know, it's it's not. Yep. Um, I think it's a great camera. Uh, I had the same problem with the G11 and the G10. Is they're just a little too big. So I'm really looking at a Canon, you know, one of the Canon point and shoots, uh, and specifically yeah. one that I can do a CDHK on. So because then I can get my raw back. I can force it to give me raw images um, by hacking it. You're throwing an acronym soup again. CDHK. So it's the it's the Canon Developer Hack Kit. I think is what the, is what it stands for. And it's you can go to CDHK. I think dot org and uh, you'll see it. And so I'm looking at getting. So it's CHDK by the way. CH. Oh, sorry. CHDK. <laughs> camera. Sorry. 
Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. That thing. That, that thing. thing too, and right. I said it too quickly. So that thing. Also so Ron, known as the Voyager warranty kit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so the uh, I mean, the thing is, I'm not going to spend a lot of money on the camera. It it I realize what I use it for. What I use the LX3. The LX3 taught me that for my point and shoot, I didn't care as much about RAW as I thought I did because the LX3 is RAW. The way it dealt with it, and the way it was working with Apple and an aperture and everything else led me to not shoot raw as often as I thought with my point and shoot, mm-hmm. um, and just be more careful about my color space and be more careful about exposure and shooting JPEGs. And just I shoot mostly JPEGs when I'm doing the point and shoot, Interesting. which which is not I specifically bought the LX3, but the problem was the raw never really worked. You know, with aperture, I don't know if it works now. Um, um, you know, when I got it, it was like months and months and months of the raw not importing correctly and not working, and so I finally just switched over because I was like, I need it to be easy and fast and painless and. And everything else, and it's not. And the, the for what I was using it for, when I want any photo that I really want to keep, um, you know, this is just Nikon being, in my opinion, being stupid about it. You know, they, they wanted to get they wanted to get the most out of it or whatever, but they made it such you know so specific that it just didn't it didn't you know I just stopped using it. And so then then I decided that raw for my point and shoot for what I used it for for just capturing behind the scenes, capturing what we're doing, yep. remembering things. I decided you know I'm just going to shoot JPEG. And so um, I know that's a that's sacrilege. But um, it's heresy. It's heresy. But uh, but so I, but I have my five D around most of the time that I and, and if I really want images that I can keep, that's what I'm going to use. Cool. All right. Move, oh, for me, I'm still using my G9 because I haven't upgraded yet. But uh, yeah, unlike Unicole, mine is typically when I'm shooting on aperture priority. And, mm-hmm. and if like Alex, if I hand it off to somebody to take a picture of me, um, Alex just blew off. Sorry, <laughs> just took off. Um, yeah, if I hand it off to take a picture for someone to take a photo, then I am going to uh, put it in manual mode, or automatic so that they can mm-hmm. get shot. Uh, next item up in the news is Silicon Power has announced a 128 gigabyte. Four gigabyte. Gigabyte. <laughs> gigabyte. With a G. 400X compact flash card. Let me say that again. 128 gigs, 400x C, uh, CF card. I, so, I didn't see the price on this. Was it, had they announced pricing or not? I, I didn't see pricing I either. couldn't find pricing on it. Yeah. I didn't see yeah. pricing either, but uh, there's a... Uh, Richard Harrington is actually sitting in the corner over here quietly, and he's uh, he said that he has a 64 gigabyte card that cost him like 100 bucks or something. 299 He does a lot of video, 299. right? $299. $299, yeah. He's a, he's a video guy, and he uses mm-hmm. it for video. My guess so. it's going to come in at about $800. That's wow. uh, yeah. uh, read speeds. I think are 90, 90 megs a second. Yes, ninety megs a second. Ninety megs a second. Yeah. So the, the megabytes, question, not megabits. Ninety me- megabytes. megabytes a second. So the question is, and I had the same question when I jumped up to you know my sixteen gig card was the the all eggs in one basket thing. You know, I mean, I can see with video you're shooting and you need as much space as you can because you might miss the moment. You know, you need to swap out. But for still photographers, the this week in photography audience. Uh, Putting all your shoot—I mean, that's like a week's worth of shooting. On, <laughs> for some people, that's on like one a, a month. Yeah. Or two. <laughs> on one card, so you're like, "Oh, I can shoot forever." You know, we have our vacation, we have our kids, we have that wedding of our cousin. You know, everything's on this one card, and you're like, "Oh, I better go import," and it and it's dead. You know, I don't know. What do you think, Alex? What I I, you know, I, got, I gotta say, I don't I don't think this is gonna be that much of a problem for us and for most of our listeners who probably are sensible about offloading stuff from cards. Yeah, but. You know, I know a lot of people. It surprised me how often I find people that are just like, "Well, I've never actually pulled the, the photos off my camera." You know, they just no, keep my, them all on. My mother, my mother in law is like that. She she yep. has photos on uh, has has photos on there oh. for the last two or three years. Yep, that yep. scares me. Yeah, yeah, I know. 
Yeah. But I see it. I see it several times. It's like, oh, I've never actually pulled these off of here. I need to figure out how to do that. And then you can just keep going, and months and even years, like you said, go by, and I don't, I don't know where the solution that is because I think at some point I, I don't even know what they're thinking. You know, is it? I, and I tried to get this out of the person I was asking, and they were just like, well, you know, I'll get it eventually. I'm like, well, what happens if you lose the camera? And I mean, I guess at some level we probably are a little bit more concerned about our photos than some people are. I mean, I really think that a lot of these people are sort of, they took the picture and it was fun to share with everybody while they were around, and then for a few weeks later, whenever somebody asked about that party they were at, and at some point it's sort of like, yeah, yeah. whatever, it's old, it's done, and, and it's a transient kind of thing, and they're not necessarily concerned about keeping it. Same as taking photos and throwing the film in the drawer, and then like, oh, I wonder what's on that roll of film. And yeah, well, yeah and, this, and this memory, the, the memory issues are going to change dramatically. They're starting, we're starting to see, I saw a reader uh, the XD readers are starting to come out. Now, I haven't seen the XD memory come out, but the XD readers are already starting to come out. And, you know, XD, the spec, goes up to two terabytes. Yeah. You know, and so um, so I think that we're, uh, you know, these, uh, between the compact flash and the XD readers, we're going to see a lot more. But I think that we're also going to see cameras that's capable of shooting even larger photos. Uh, when you start adding uh, high, you know, high dynamic range into the photos, yeah. you yep. could end up with, with single images that are, uh, you know, very, very large, 100, 100. But I, I think 100 we, we've hit this inflection point with both hard drives and and uh, flashcards, you know, where we're kind of past the point where you really need to worry about space. You know, I mean, it used to be that you, when I was dealing with photos, I was trying to swap disks out, and I'm like, oh, i got to get another disk. And I've, you know, I've definitely got to the point now where I will never really be worried about disk space. I will always have gigabytes more, or maybe even terabytes more than I probably need. And I think the same thing is kind of happening with these compact flashcards. But I also do think, you know, the other piece of why people don't worry about this, I think, is that a lot of people don't, their camera is the device they have to show off their photos to. Which is an interesting thing altogether. I mean, and, and I, know that, I know that there's a lot of photos that I take with my iPhone that, you know, of people or places or things. And, you know, I don't, I mean, the, the place, what I do with it is I either upload it to um, Flickr or to Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, and then it just stays on my iPhone. Or yeah. eventually sinks to my, when I sync it, it eventually mm-hmm. sinks to my iPhoto, but I don't, but, but the place that I have it most of the time that I show people is most, mostly on my that, iPhone. That brings up a good question, and this is personal, because I have, uh, I do the same thing. I mean, I snap pictures on the iPhone all the time, and I put them on Twitter or TwitPic or whatever. Or, or uh, MMS them to other people that have phones that can receive an MMS. Right. Um, but then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sync my iPhone to the Mac, and it'll pop up the dialog box. You know, there's a bunch of photos on here. What do you want to do with them? What do you guys do with those photos? I mean, I, what I've been doing is, because I'm using Lightroom for my photo management, I'll just copy them off and put them in an in a iPhone library in there. Mm-hmm. But... Do you, are you like? I, I just have iPhone. You use iPhoto to manage all yeah. your iPhone app or yeah. your yeah, iPhone yeah, I just uh, sync photos. It to iPhone because it's all synced. It's all part of. The, what else do you have an iPhone or an iPhoto? Um, I have a lot of older images from our, you know, PR photos. Some of my kids' photos, you know, that type of thing are, yeah. are in are in iPhoto. Because okay. I go back and forth between the two because we're testing them constantly. So I, I uh, keep I keep enough stuff there that that I can see what I like about the new iPhoto versus Aperture sure, or versus sure. Lightroom, and and so I have I have things in. All three libraries, it's very confusing. Yeah, yeah, I have stuff in, you know, because it's weird, because now I have stuff in iPhoto as well, because, you know, I need to make nice slideshows, and I like to use my mobile me galleries and all that, well, and so I have to bring it in and then share it out, so it's like... Well, part of my thing is is that I'm, I am a little addicted to media media in general, um, the media browser, mm-hmm. and having everything built just the way it was designed, because I, I make a lot of keynotes, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being able to just grab that stuff and have it in the libraries, the way it was organized, yeah. you know, that type of thing. So all my PR photos any, or, or behind-the-scenes photos, like mm-hmm. all of that's either an Aperture or iPhoto because I want to make sure that I can uh, easily get that. 
And yeah. Richard's probably going to show us a way not to do that. But and Nicole, Nicole, I know you you got an iPhone recently. Yes. Are how, uh, are you taking pictures with it? Oh, I take lots. Of, I probably have like five or six hundred plus, maybe even more pictures. I mean, the pictures I take on my iPhone though are usually. They're pictures that I, I take because I either want to share them, like put them on TwitPic or Facebook, uh, or I'm going, you know, I take it as a reference to something. Like I see something and it sparks an idea in my head for a photo, take a picture of it, and I'll usually email it to myself. So almost all of the photos on my iPhone have already been, like, quote unquote, published somewhere. Yeah. Or, or already, you know, or, you know, and I back up my, I back, I back my, let me talk here, I back up my iPhone pretty regularly. So they're all safe, but I don't, I don't like, Put them in my Lightroom yeah, don't offload catalog. Them. Yeah. No, well, you know, one, one thing that Richard Harrington just showed me on the screen was, and I knew this. I mean, with um, when you bring your images into, say, iPhoto, they've they've built the bridge between iPhoto and Aperture um, called a Media Browser that will allow you to see in Aperture what you have in your your iPhoto library. So if you import those photos from your iPhone into iPhoto but you're using Aperture as your main image management app, you can still get to those photos. So it's a, it's a, you know, a way to do it. I my my complexity is that my, my, my Aperture library, to make it more confusing, my Aperture library is not on my laptop laptop, my, my, on my laptop hard drive because, because it's too big. So, so it's on an external drive. So what I carry around with me when I'm building keynotes, the reason it's on my iPhone, what's in my iPhoto one is ones I want sitting on my laptop and it's a much lighter, you know, it's a couple gigs rather yeah. than um, my, my Aperture one is... Tens, Everything needs to be in the cloud. Clouds. It all needs to be in the cloud. <laughs> so I can just boot up any any photo app from anywhere and, you know... And Open need, your raw photos and edit them. I need yeah. Picasso in the cloud. That's what I need. Anyway. Uh, anyway, it is in the cloud. Already. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's where Apple's going to. I mean, with, yeah. with .Mac and with all the other stuff, I think that we're on the, we're on a path that way. Yeah. All right. So uh, this, this next story is, is kind of controversial. And I think we're all going to have different opinions on it. And it's about a photographer that lost a bid to refuse to shoot a same-sex wedding. So, and it brings up the topic of, can you refuse jobs? You know, and what pops up into my head is like, you go to a restaurant and they have the sign up, the sign up there that says, we, we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody for any reason. Which, and they don't really have that right, even if they say that. Oh. No, no, they don't. You well, can't. I know you can't say, oh, don't come in here because I don't like you for your race or your gender or whatever, but. Right. What if they? I don't like those shoes you have on. Can no, no, they can do. That. Well, <laughs> it's no more, it's, get out of here. They, they can, they, they can reserve that right, but, but within, but only within reason. You know, they, they, they don't really have the right that they say. So if someone really wanted to take history, a take us through the gist of the So here's the, here's the history, and this is on PDN, uh, Photo District News. So, um, and I'll read a little bit of it. Uh, in, uh, the wedding photographer uh, basically refused the freedom of speech, uh, refused on freedom of speech and religious grounds um, to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony in 2006. Um, has lost, she's lost her anti-discrimination appeal. So this is Elaine, um, man, I'll try to say her last name well, uh, Ginnan, uh is uh, was uh, challenging challenging a 2008 ruling by the New Mexico Human Rights Commission. Um, anyway, and, and, and she lost. And basically, what happened was is she was um, you know the case arose after Vanessa uh, Willock of Albuquerque contacted her business um, about uh, photographing her commitment ceremony. Uh, Elaine told uh, Willock uh, by email, "We do not photograph same-sex weddings," but gave no explanation. And so, so anyway, and so then there was a, you know, a, a discrimination claim and, and it went back and forth and she, and she ended up losing, um, this, this claim. So the question really is, is does she have the right to, um, decline services to something that she doesn't believe in? 
Yeah. So I, I have a I have a definite opinion on it. So what's your opinion? Well, <laughs> everybody giggle. My my opinion is, I mean, how can you enforce something like that? I mean, you're if as an artist, how can somebody compel you to create art from your heart for something that you don't want to be creating it for? I mean, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's you know. Whether it's, you know, racist or whatever or whatever, you know, if, if somebody says, if you are a person that I don't like that kind of person for whatever personal reasons I have, and somebody says, I don't care if you like them or not, get over there and take pictures of them and make a great product. It's going to affect I your outcome. Hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say this, Fred, just so I could argue with you. I knew you are. <laughs> not that you're argumentative, really. <laughs> Bring it on, so, Brinkman. Well, okay, so you think it would be fine if you came to me and said, Ron, I want you to shoot my wedding. And I said, no, I don't shoot weddings with black people. I don't think it would be fine, and I would have to kick your ass for it. But, <laughs> however, if you said that, and then, you know, for some reason I fought it in court, and they compelled you to come shoot my wedding, yep. who am I to think that you're actually going to do a good job <laughs> yeah. shooting but that's beside my wedding? I, no, I agree. Not, and, and, it's art. That's the end product is art. So it's exactly the point, because the, well, if the end product is art, there's no way you can compel somebody to create well, something from their heart, is what I'm it, saying. You, you can't. Obviously, you can't. I mean, but you're, you're talking about what should be legal versus what is a sensible thing. I mean, I'm it saying it's – it's, no, I'm not arguing the, the legality of it. I'm arguing the enforceability of well, it. Well, I, I will say I will say that, I will say that the, the, the one thing about it is, is that if someone told me that they didn't want to take – my wedding for whatever reason. I mean, you know, my, exactly. my, my wife, my wife's African American, and mm-hmm. if they said, "Well, I don't want to take wedding because it's gonna, it's a mixed wedding, and I don't believe in mixed weddings." Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want them. I wouldn't want the moment. I don't disagree with that, but like, and that's why this photographer is an idiot for not just saying, you know. I'll I'll come shoot your wedding, but my heart's not going to be in it. I don't believe in this. I think you really should yeah. find somebody else. I mean, at that point, the person would have just been like, "Oh, okay. Well, we don't want you anyway." Then. Well, and, and yeah. well, the thing is, is and you don't even need to be that. I mean, here's the thing: is that what I don't? A little bit of this is just political, you know, uh, posture. All you have to do is you ask you ask a whole bunch of questions, and you just and then you just say, "I have something else scheduled." I mean, yeah, the thing is, is that there's that. she. Yeah. The, it was the reason that she took well, this huge stand on this. There are no par- apartments available. I'm just saying that the, beyond the legal legality of it or whatever, it's just that if you're gonna, you know, when you the one thing you do have to be conscious of, and I think it is important um, to be conscious of, is uh, um, is that you don't need to take a stand with everything that you do. True. You know, you can right. just simply not do it. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know exactly. I mean, where's where's this where's she gonna draw the line if it's uh if she really has that in her belief that it's you know it's a religious thing or it's a moral thing for her, is she gonna look into everyone's background? You know, if she doesn't believe in, say, a couple, uh, even a heterosexual couple living together before they're married, you know, if she doesn't know that, then it, she's not going to say anything. But if she finds that out, is she still gonna refuse and do something stupid and say, No, I'm not gonna do it because of that? It's not that is not like a classified, you know, they can't the, the law can't, you know, classify that and say, well, that's discrimination well, like they I, could with the same-sex couple. Well, and I think that also, though, is I, I think that the issue is is that, you know, this is a great example. And this is something I've learned many times over the last year or two. Mm-hmm. Is um, this is why before you say you will do anything for anyone for money, mm-hmm. you get all the details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without anything like, well, let me see what we can do. You know, I don't know. I've got a bunch of things. Like, I'm, I've become extremely noncommittal. So people come up and say, hey, we, we have this new animation we'd like to do. And I go, hey, that sounds great. Let's, let's go through all the details, and I'll tell you whether it's really a right fit for us and whether we can do it. And I get all – I mean, because I had one where we said we were going to do 
um, you know, we were going to do a, a, a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the guy just kind of showed me a couple things and I said, oh yeah, yeah, we can do the effects for that. This is, this is like eight years ago or something like that. And, um, and it turned out to be kind of a borderline, uh, <laughs> borderline porn, you know, like, you know, and, and it was like, is there a border? <laughs> no, no, no. It was like, it, it, it didn't show anything, but it, but it was, it was, it was, it, you know, it was a lot of, you know, I was like, like you know, you know, and, and, uh, and, 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 and the thing is, is that I have a, I have a, um, Sorry, awesome. I, I had, <laughs> you should have seen Alex's face. <laughs> so anyway, I but the thing is, is that I was like, oh, I shouldn't have taken this on. But once I took it on, I'm kind of committed to you know finishing you know what we said we were going to do, and um, and the issue is, is that I, and, and I and, and we finished it because we said we were going to do that. But from then on, yeah, to take you know, a we asked, after it, right? Yeah, yeah. We, oh, but, but the main thing is, is it, it, the problem that I had was, is that I have a company that we have a lot. We have kids in the Pixel Core. We have people who are conservative, people who are liberal, people or whatever. Yeah. And we just tend, we tend to stay very middle of the road. Mm-hmm. We just don't take on risky um, movies. We don't take on risky projects. We don't. We just don't take those on because they're they're um, they don't work with our uh, and I'm, and 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 like. Um, uh, you know, the um, same sex or whatever would not, is, we would consider that middle of the road. I mean, we're not, we're not, we don't, what I'm saying is we don't take on like porn or heavily sexual stuff or heavily, you know, like those are all the kind of stuff that we, we tend to stay away from. I yeah. mean, even if someone swears too often in a project, we will think about it, right. you know, because it's just, because it's just not it's what a family we, show. Yeah. It's a family show. And so the, you know, we don't, we're not, that's not going to end up on our demo reel, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so, but, but, but what we do to do that is not usually a, you know, I don't tell people, oh, I don't believe in your project because you're X, Y, and Z, or you shouldn't be showing so much skin, or you shouldn't do whatever. It's just that, you know, we just look at it and we decide whether it really makes sense for us to fit into our pipeline. Our pipeline is always full. We have to add people to do it. And it just, you know, it, it doesn't work or it does work. It, but we don't have to have an explicit conversation about it. So, so Nicole, wait, 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 let me actually ahead, make a point ahead, there. because, uh, And I understand what you're saying, Alex, but I think that <laughs> photographers do need to be a little bit careful with this. Um, and, and in this particular news article, exactly... There was a scenario that came up where after they got that mail back saying we don't photograph same-sex weddings, the partner of this woman actually uh, got back in touch, didn't reveal it was same-sex, and they agreed to do the ceremony, right? Which in this case, uh, you know, imagine if that first contact had not been we don't photograph same-sex weddings, but just, oh, we're busy. Uh, and then a minute later, her partner calls and says, we do a wedding and we're not busy. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you know, they still have this claim of discrimination, right? And this happens in, in housing all the time where... You know, you hear people that are moving into a neighborhood that doesn't want those kind of people in their neighborhood, uh, and they're told, oh, you know, that we rented that or it's not available, and then you call back and don't reveal your race, for instance, mm-hmm. and find out it is. So, I mean, there's still a danger there, and you need to be careful not to do that kind of thing either, where you you immediately discount it. I mean, I, for something like this, I really think the... We're talking about two different things, though. I think I think the first thing is, yeah, on the on the side of what's right and what's legal, yeah, of course, you can't discriminate against anybody for any reason, and... You know, people, of course, can skirt around that, as what you're saying, around. They can, like, you know, hey, they can profile you and then allow you or disallow you to do a certain thing based on what they profiled you silently as. But on the other side, and what I'm talking about is it's all moot when it comes to creating art or a project like this because if you find that somebody, because it's not like apartment, you know, you can take them to court and get the apartment, you move in, it's all good. But with art or shooting a wedding or where you're creating a product that, that you need to, you know, put your, put your experiences and, and, and creative brain into, you can't compel that by court, you know? Well, the other thing, though, I will say about that is that I, I think that uh, I know for us, I mean, for me, um, you know, I tend to be pretty mercenary about what I do. <laughs> so there are some... You? No. There, yeah, there's some... <laughs> but what I mean by that is that, is that like, um, I... 
uh, you know, to me, the art is paying attention to all the details. Mm-hmm. You know, it's paying attention yeah. to get the, getting the good shot, getting the good angle, getting the whatever. But it, it isn't it isn't what what I'm actually doing it about. I mean, people send me like they ask me to do visual effects shots for a film. And they want to send me the script and I don't, you know, I want to know, I, I'll ask them, does it have this, this, and this in it? Because I can't use it. I can't use the footage later if, if it does. But, but I don't want to see the whole film. You know, I, I, mean, I don't care what your, st- <laughs> I don't want to be rough about it, but I don't care what your story is. I just want to know what you want me to do. You know, and, and, and the thing is, is that it is, and, and what I mean by that is that it's, um, you know, part of it is, is that we are providing a service and, and really the artwork is getting the great photos, getting the great images, getting the, and, and it, it is important to have your heart in it. But I think also we need to look at, um, you know, that, that it is, uh, you really have to decide whether you really want, you should be in a service business when you decide you want to start turning service off to people who have a legal right to do whatever they're doing. You know what I'm saying? It's one of those things that, I mean, there is stuff that we can, can be clearly out of the, you know, that, that is not, that's out of the reasonable Lair, but I think that um, this is not. I don't think one of those examples. And she does have to be careful running a business where she's going to start taking that. You know, this is this is what, if you start taking those stands, you are going to find yourself in, uh, and especially when you take them so blatantly. Right, but you know, there, you know, there, there are certainly a lot of areas where uh, you're right, Fred. That there, people may not want to photograph, or their heart might not be be in it. But that's kind of why there are laws, you know, that draw the line on certain types of things like racism and sex discrimination, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think, yeah. Well, I mean, my suggestion would be these guys uh, need to go out and find a camera that uh, won't shoot homosexual people. It's like the ones that don't shoot black people. Oh, man. And then they can just... Yeah, I mean, camera. the thing is, is that it's, it's... You know, and my thing is, I wouldn't sue you. I would just make sure... But if you, you could never have an f- open-line forum. You know, if I... You know, you know it would just because I, I'd remind everybody. And, you know, and there's a lot of... The other thing you have to be careful about, regardless of the law, is that we're in, a, we're in, we're in an age of Yelp and of feedback and everything else and you get you start you know picking fights with people over over stuff and, yes. and you got to know that that you're gonna that can affect your business all over the place because there's a lot of people if i knew that someone was turning someone down just because they it was same sex i'd be less likely to hire them yeah you know you know the thing is i'd be worried about you know so that, that, that's the that they that they're not willing to even shoot it you know i would be you know and that's the thing you have to be careful of also when you're starting to do this is that you know, and, and, if it, and if it's that important to you and, and, and that it really is a big issue for you, that's one thing. But just make sure that it really is because um, don't do not do it flippantly because it's, it, it can affect – because it's not just the people that you don't want to serve. It's people who respect that right um, not wanting to work with you either. So, Nicole, are, mm-hmm. there, are there any topics or, or, or photographic subjects that you would avoid based on any sort of – um, beliefs or political affiliations or anything, or w- would you shoot anything that, before you can? Well, the luxury of what I do is that I get to choose what I photograph. I'm I rarely have people come to me and ask, you know, to like shoot a wedding. I just I don't really photograph weddings. Uh, I I did recently just for a friend, kind of as their wedding gift. But um, I I'd like to kind of keep my photos clean. I guess is a good way to do it on you know on, on the photos I sell through iStock. Um, and part of that is, you know, I, <laughs> my, my philosophy is uh, I want to put photos on my, in my portfolio that my grandmother can look at and be okay with, you know. Uh, not that I would avoid, you know, shooting any kind of same sex or anything like that. But, um, you know, I guess like the nudity and the, you know, like, you know, like what you were saying, Alex, with the pornography issues, yeah. I would stay far away from stuff like that. So. It's a family show. Yeah, uh, yeah a family <laughs> show. What about you, Ron? What, what, do you avoid anything? No. 
<laughs> wow, okay, and he's in LA too, so anybody, anybody in LA that needs some shots, go to Ron Prince. So uh, yeah, again, I don't, I don't shoot for money, so there's not really been a, a conflict here. I mean, I'm sure there are things I would, you know, choose not to, to take pictures of. Uh, you know, if somebody came to me and said, I want to hire you to shoot a, a dog fight or something like that, yeah, forget it, right? But, yeah. um, on the other hand. A couple of shows ago, aren't you the guy a couple of shows ago that showed us an invoice from Playboy? <laughs> yes, an invoice for shooting photos of dead fish. <laughs> That's not a metaphor, right? No. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, let's uh, let's pause for a quick second to give another shout out to one of our sponsors, Alex. So we'd like to uh, thank Audible.com. Of course, uh, this this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over fifty thousand titles to choose from. You can download and play them back anywhere. Uh, Ron, have you been reading anything, listening to anything lately? I have, actually. What, what uh, have you been listening to? I just read a, a, a pretty fun book called Born to Run. Have you guys have heard of this? Yes? No? No. Uh, no. no. All right. It is, uh, it's an interesting story. It's, sort of, uh, it's about long-distance runners, ultra-long-distance runners, ultra-marathoners, the kind of guys that go out and run uh, you know, 100, mile, uh, 100 miles in a day and then get up the next morning and do it again. Right. Uh, and it's sort of this, this two-point story. Uh, part of it is about this... Uh, hidden tribe down in, in Mexico that uh, are just sort of natural long-distance runners. And so this is tale of this guy going down and trying to find them and how they get you know involved in doing some of these epic marathons and all that. And the other half of it is sort of this thesis that uh, we were born to run barefoot. And the biggest problem that everybody, all these problems that people are having with knee injuries and, and foot injuries and all that are directly attributable to wearing padded shoes whenever you run, wearing these you know runners. Uh, and, and his whole contention is that we were born to be running barefoot. And if you start running barefoot or with some very, very low padding shoe, uh, you will eliminate all of these injuries that runners typically tend to see. So it's a pretty fascinating book, pretty well thought out, and really a really good storyteller with a lot of, a lot of interesting characters. I mean, anybody that is the type of personality that will go out and run hundreds of miles in a day uh, has got to be a little bit skewed i think <laughs> and so so this book is full of characters like that of people that are just uh, kind of outside of the mainstream but it's a great read you know fast read and, and just really fun to listen to and I actually you know listen to some of it while i was running so it's great and it's, it's unabridged yep so it's a it's a lot of there's a it's 11 hours and nine minutes yeah, long. so if you're into running or i was never really into running and then uh buddy of mine is training for the marathon and he keeps trying to talk me into doing it which i will not do but i was like you know i should really at least i've always been a bike rider but i should really try out this running thing so i actually went out and there you go so you so, so you read a book <laughs> listen to a book i listened to a book on it and then i decided that no it was actually dumber than that. i went out and I, I said all right i'm gonna try to run and i went out for my first run i ran 14 miles and then i was effectively crippled for the week following that i could not walk so so don't do it that way. Okay, so there you go. And uh, and if you want to download that or anything else uh, on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com audiblepodcast.com slash T-W-I-P. I didn't make a funny noise with that one. You, you, made, you made a funny noise. You didn't make a funny, a funny face. face. I didn't make <laughs> There's video, there's audio. I've been hanging out with my with my uh, with my son too long, and so I'm always driving along. <laughs> you know, I'm tempted. Well, I know we're gonna go to the pics in a little bit, but I'm tempted to use my uh, uh, the the iPhone app I was showing you guys off the air as my <laughs> pick of the week. But we'll talk about that later. Um, before we uh, before we get into that the pick stuff and all those cool things, um, I wanted to 
introduce our guest for today, who is Mr. Andy Biggs. He's been on the show, and he was on the show last year, I believe. Um, and if you don't remember or you, or you didn't hear him when he was on, um, you get another chance. This is a, a really good interview with him, if I do say so myself. He, uh, he is uh, one of the things that he's known for, aside from being an amazing photographer, um, when you go to a site, just click on the links in the show notes to uh, to get a link to a site. But when you head over there, you're going to be blown away because uh, Andy spends a lot of time in Africa taking folks like you um, on photo safaris and making the pictures of their lifetime. So it's uh, this discussion was about that, and we got in, and some of the questions I had for him were just, you know, what do you take with you? What do you do? How do you survive? Are you living in tents? All that, co- all that interesting stuff that everybody would want to know. So uh, give this interview a listen. A longtime friend of This Week in Photography, Andy Biggs, is one of those photographers whose work and adventures speak for themselves. As the leader of photographic safaris around Africa's Serengeti, amongst other places, he regularly helps photographers get the pictures of their lives while in the process changing their lives by introducing them to the beauty and culture of Africa. And when he's not chasing wild leopards around Africa, he's busy with his company, Gura Gear. They make an amazing camera bag that was born out of the real-world necessities of a working adventure photographer. Andy Biggs. Welcome to This Week in Photography. Thanks for having me back. Thanks so much. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome to have you back. Thanks for thanks for taking the time out of your evening to let me pick your brain. So, Andy, I was looking at your website, and uh, I noticed that you're, it says that you're a conservationist. What does that mean? You know, it means, the, to me, it means showing and introducing something to people that they can now understand uh, tangibly what is worth conserving. And uh, the model that that works in my mind is is conservation through tourism, basically introducing people to something, allowing them to love it and then want to conserve it. And what needs conserving at the moment are both wildlife actually and cultures. And um, you basically have one encroaching on the other. For example, if the Serengeti National Park in Tanzania was never created, we would have had uh, people, more and more people settling in the area, displacing the wildlife. Mm. Um, so, so basically, that's that's my take on it. It's it's using more of a financial model for conservation, uh, where you're bringing monies to local people uh, that really need it, and and in teaching them to conserve the wildlife as opposed to to using them for their own short term benefit. Got it. Okay. So rewind back a little bit, or, or a lot. So. You know, a lot of photographers spend their time in the United States or, you know, they may venture slightly outside the bounds of the United States. What what drove you to Africa, you know, of all the the, the, the regions around the globe? What what keeps you coming back or going back to Africa? That's a really good, good, good question. Um, back about, um, I guess, about seven, eight years ago, my wife and I, uh, we used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was in the software industry. And we both had jobs that we weren't just weren't just too excited about. We were going to move back uh, to our home state of Texas, back to Austin. And we decided that since we didn't have any kids, we didn't have any dogs, we didn't have any car payments, we didn't have a house payment, we would just pack up all of our things and take off for Africa. And so we took off for about a month and a half. And, and we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. We went on safari. We went and laid 
on the beach and in Zanzibar. And we basically spent six weeks throughout Kenya and Tanzania. About halfway through that trip, I figured out that not only did I love the area and I was really happy with the photographs that I was taking, but I also thought that there was a business opportunity because I didn't see many other photographers um, t- taking people or leading workshops there. There yeah. are certainly people doing that, but I didn't see anybody doing it full time. Uh, for example, there are a lot of photographers that one month you'll find them in Antarctica, the next month you'll find them in some other location, and they just kind of take the shotgun approach. Well, I wanted to become a specialist because I just fell in love with the area. I fell in love with the people, the landscape, the wildlife, the lifestyle of being out on safari. Yeah. And and then it just quickly grew into visiting other countries like Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, uh, Rwanda, Kenya, and just and now it's it's just an, an all out love affair with with the safari lifestyle. I just love. I love it. It's, it's a blast. That's awesome. Okay, so so now I'm 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 completely depressed because I yeah I live in Silicon Valley and I have a great job, but wouldn't it be cool <laughs> to be on the Serengeti with my camera shooting? Okay, so take me through that. I'm I'm one of I would presumably be in your target market of people that are wouldn't ordinarily find it in their the realm of things that they think of doing to jump on a plane with their camera gear and go into the middle of the Serengeti and other parts of Africa to take photographs. I of course want to do that, but I'd need somebody like you to help me do that. So can you take me through, I pick up the phone, I call you, then what, what happens? Well, I basically explained to you all the best times of the year to go on safari. What are the differences between the locations of a lot of these different um, places. Uh, for example, like January, February, and early March are just awesome times to be on the Serengeti Plains because that's when the wildebeest calving season takes place, and you've got something around 5,000 wildebeest born every day. Um, so it's the big wildebeest wow. migration of 2-plus million wildebeest, 250,000 zebras. Well, it's just well, a, you said 5,000 wildebeest born daily? Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty cool. But, but, but also, wow. yeah, and then uh, someplace like Botswana, uh, it's totally different because um, that's a different time of the year where it may not be the best time to be in the Okavango Delta. I might go to with uh, my Botswana trips in July, August, September, um, something like that. And uh, that may not have this, the, the numbers of the migratory animals, but boy, we get excellent sightings of other things. Like, yep. We get the ability to drive off-road, and and uh, so I basically walk people through when and where. Then I describe how, like how do you get there. Mm-hmm. Tanzania, that's pretty easy. It's just uh, for, for somebody living in North America, you just hop on a plane, get to Amsterdam, and then a single trip down from Amsterdam down to Tanzania, and that's it. Wow. And I travel with my, with my travelers. Um, I get off the plane with them. Um, a lot of times I do run back-to-back safari, so I might already be in the country. And if that's the case, I pick you up from the airport with all my guides. And I basically take you through a safari without you having to worry about a thing. I take, I know where to go. I know all the roads and paths. I, I speak Swahili in East Africa. Oh, wow. I, um, yeah, so I'm kind of like 25 to 50% guide and the rest photographer. But what do you do? The do the photographers are they are you pitching tents and staying out there in the middle of nowhere, or are you going out during the day and shooting and then heading back to a hotel? How does that so, part work? 
That's a really good question. Well, it depends. Um, in Tanzania, we typically set up what we call Hemingway-style tents, mm-hmm. where we um, we basically the the company that, we, that I work with they they set up these really 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 comfortable tents ahead of time. Um, they've got down comforter beds, and it, it's just everything a photographer would need. But I also have purchased uh, some generators and set up some other charging tents, so we always have electricity because. As photographers, we're very dependent on electricity, and I would term it more as being addicted to electricity. <laughs> yeah, we are. So, yeah, so and oil, think, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, we have to have that in our Land Rovers. So, yep. uh, but also in the in my Land Rovers uh, in a, in East Africa, I have rigged up these uh, power inverters where I've got actually power strips rigged into the vehicle, where each row of seats you can basically reach up and plug in your uh, your, your charger. Oh, so it, awesome. it, yeah, it's really cool. And, um, so our typical day is we're up early. Photographers need good light. Yep. Um, and depending on where we are, like in Botswana, we might, uh, just eat a little bit of breakfast, go out, come back around. Where, where does that breakfast come from? Are you up before the team and you're out hunting and you get it and you, <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, we need to take you on safari. Hey, uh, there's a lot of wildebeest out there, so they're not going to miss one, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we eat continental style, you know, breakfasts, uh, eggs and cold cereals and breads and toasts. It, it's 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 wonderful and and um and we typically don't go out in the middle of the day when it's hot and the light is harsh. Yeah. Um, we spend the late part of the morning kind of teeing up what we do for the afternoon. For example, we might find a uh, a pride of lions in one specific area, and we just kind of track where they're where they seem to be moving if if they're moving at all. And then we'll head back there at three thirty or four o'clock and wait for the sun to get low in the sky and just track them again. That's great. Now, while yeah. while you're out there, have you have you had any like what's what was your your hairiest adventure? Like you know, a pack of of, of wild elephants stomping at you, or you know, what what's the wildest thing that you've had happen? God, you know, the, the the one part of me wants to tell you this really tall tale, you know, just just, just really make up something. <laughs> there wild. was a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, and but, <laughs> yeah, but the reality is there's just I don't have any dangerous moments. Really? I really don't. Yeah, I really don't. And it's it's such a safe – I don't, it's hard to call them adventures, but uh, it, it's a safe, enjoyable experience. That's great. Really yeah. Okay, I, so we've, we've got some questions coming in on Twitter. I put out the word that I was talking to you and – uh, questions have been rolling in. Like, so the first question is from someone by the name of John D. Hayes. He says, what type of gear does he take with him? And do the cultural differences dictate equipment, longer lens for more uh, personal space, etc.? That's a really good question. Um, I was a Canon shooter for a long time, and then I switched. Actually, I was a Nikon shooter 10 years ago, then switched to Canon when Canon kind of one-upped Nikon in the digital world. I switched back to Nikon last December primarily because of the 200-400 f4 zoom, which is uh, it's just a wonderful wildlife lens. Um, the main reason why I use that lens is because I'm able to, to frame my subjects. Mm-hmm. So I zoom in and out and just frame it just the way I want it. Um, so I typically take two, sometimes three SLRs. Um, for a while, I was shooting with a D3 and a D3X and then a D300. We had a we had a burglar in our house a couple months ago, oh. so now I'm, now I'm shooting with a, a D700 and a D300. And to be honest, they're awesome cameras, and I don't miss the other ones a bit. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and then I take like a 70 to 200 and usually a smaller zoom. Mm-hmm. But the rule of thumb that I say is that East Africa with the wide open plains, you need more lens. Southern Africa like Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa, you need less. Uh, you typically will, will uh, favor the more faster zooms like a 70 to 200 2.8 or a 300 2.8. Yeah. East, East Africa, you know, you can never have enough focal length. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So we're we we've gone out on during the day. We've had our breakfast. We've gone out. We've we've <laughs> captured some great images. Sun's gone down. We, the the helicopter sized mosquitoes are coming out. We go back to the tent. What happens now? Well, you're forgetting that we walked by the bar first. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, so we, you're going to have to take me on your next adventure. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so, well, that cold beer or glass of wine, whatever, is waiting for you. So we grab that. We um, we start charging. We start downloading. I'm looking over everybody's shoulders, helping them out. Some people need workflow assistance. Some people just have it down pat. Mm-hmm. And um, and everyone has their own laptop at this point, right? So they're 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 downloading everything onto their own machines and into their own image management software of choice. Exactly, and I, I make sure that uh, before we leave home, that I've sent out a flurry of emails explaining how things work and to make sure that you have redundant data in case of a failure of uh, of a hard drive, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I always let people use my machine if if they ever have problems with their own. And uh, we basically download, and then we use kind of that time as well as middle of the day to to do informal teaching. Like um, I'd say, about every other night on Safari, I bring out my projector, and we I pull it out, and I start talking about you know when's the best time to take a shot of a lion, or um, te- you know I'll teach a little more than just you know what's an f stop. It's usually well. What kind of how does depth of field apply to wildlife photography? Mm-hmm. You know, why would I shoot at f four versus f eight versus f fourteen? Um, and I'll explain that you know you're, you're always wanting the eyes sharp, and sometimes you'd like to have the ears and the nose sharp if they're close, and mm-hmm. you need enough depth of field. And walk through that a lot of color theory. Um, some people like to uh, shoot with flash photography, especially if they're birders. So I, I walk through that. So it's it's really casual. I kind of I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, do you keep in touch with with the students that go through the program like afterwards after the thing is over? Well, I, I have to say that I'm I'm probably the luckiest guy on earth, and that my customers are also lifelong friends because That's great. We, yeah we we build these wonderful um, experiences on the safari, and we come back and we always stay in touch. I'd say a lot of the safaris. There's somebody in the group that says, "Hey, let's put a blur book together," and so every, everybody contributed <laughs> contributes photographs, and we just put a big blur book together. So it's just it's just a ton of fun, just That's a ton great. of fun. All right, I'm going to take another question from the Twitter stream here. So this one's from Mark Rowland. He says, "If you were only allowed to take two lenses for your entire life, what would they be?" Well, if I was in Africa, I would probably choose something different than if I was chasing my wife and two kids around the backyard with the camera. <laughs> so I'm going to split my answer into two. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if I was in Africa, I would probably choose two lenses that got me up to four to 500 millimeters. So in the Canon world, I'd probably go for like a 100 to 400 and a 400DO or a 500F4. Mm-hmm. And if I was in the Nikon world, I'd probably choose a 70 to 200 and a 200 F4 with a teleconverter. Got it. 
Okay. Yeah, and if and if I'm in my backyard chasing my two two boys around, I would probably have my 24 to 70 f2.8, and I love an 85 millimeter prime. Whether it's an f1.2, 1.4, or 1.8, just doesn't matter. That's just the perfect focal length. I love it. I agree. I agree. I love that. Uh, if if I had to put one lens on there, well, between that and the 51.4 and the Nikon, you know, oh. just, uh, those two lenses just walking around, that would be my. I have to live with that for the rest of my life kind of lenses. I I totally agree. So, uh, you know, I'm looking at your bio again, and I, I see this word that's popping out at me, Banana Republic. So you, uh. did, <laughs> you did some work in 2008. You did some work for Banana Republic. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was fun. Um, so I was, um, I was contacted by Banana Republic's, uh, their ad agency in New York, and they basically said, hey, we'd like to use some of your photographs from Banana Republic. We're going to do an outdoor photo shoot, and we'd like to use your images as the backdrops printed really, really large, like 20 feet by 30 feet. Oh, wow. And we want to put them like on the side of a building and just do some shots in that. And we're trying to evoke, uh, go back 30 years in time and remind people that this is this is our heritage. And we used to we used to have kind of the khaki ex, explore, or expedition kind of uh, clothing line. And I said, hey, that sounds really cool. Well, that quickly turned into, hey, we'd like to use your images for annual report on our website. We'd like to make a video with them. And, and then that turned into, hey, we want to use them as the store decor and all the stores around the globe. Mm-hmm. And that was great. That was just a lot of fun. Um, my agent basically did a really good job negotiating where we got them to to throw a fun party for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah so, I think I think it's awesome that you can you can say the words my agent. <laughs> That's cool. You know, the really funny part about it is, is that, like, that's the, like, I don't get many big deals like that. Yeah. Or wildlife photographers in general don't exist in the, in the fashion world very well. And, uh, that was, that was a fun, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and having somebody negotiate a deal that negotiated a lot better than I could have for sure. Yeah. Man, well, that's what they do, right? Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. Okay. A couple more questions from Twitter. Uh, people have a lot of questions for you, it turns out. Um, this one's from Pom Ranka. He says, thoughts on photographing captive versus wild animals? Mm, boy, yeah, you, you can feel the temperature rise in my room over here. <laughs> I'm not a fan of captive wildlife. I, I just, I, I find it um, uh, deplorable is probably an easy way to put it. I, I just don't like the concept of taking uh, of wildlife and trying to um, portray that they're in a situation that they're not. Yeah, you're not, a big, uh, not a big fan of the zoo, right? I, I'm not, even though I have done a couple of talks at a few zoos before. But I'm thinking more of like the like these wild game farms where they keep all these exotic animals in cages and mm-hmm. tiny, tiny cages. And I just, I'm just not a fan at all. And and it really to me. I value a photographic experience just as much as I value the result of a good photograph. Yeah. You know, and like I want to feel like um, I had a great day and, oh, I happened to take a great photograph at the same time versus the experience is just really, really poor and, you know, release the animal, let it run around for five minutes before you put it back in the cage. Yeah. I just, uh, that's not a fan. Yeah. You know, I, th- 
uh, on a slightly different tangent, I had a question for you. So this is this is about light, you know, just the quality of light in general. So I'm in the Bay Area right now in San Jose, and the light, you know, I guess I'm used to it, but the light is, you know, kind of meh. In your world, when you go from your house to, you know, the Serengeti or places unknown in Africa, do you get a feeling that the light here versus the light there are is just different, even, you know, with under similar lighting conditions? That's a really good question. I, I do notice it, um, and there are certain places that, to me, just have absolutely magical light Yeah. Um, that you just can't replicate here at home. For example, um, the light in Namibia, uh, where I, I lead workshops there for landscapes, uh, there's just something about it that's totally, totally different. Um, and I do notice it. Does it change my photographic style at all? I'm not sure that it does, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly it's, I, I feel like I'm more aware of it the minute I leave home. Yeah, because you know you get so used to the light at home. I used to live in the Bay Area, yep. and I remember moving there and thinking, "Man, the light here is awesome." And all my friends, they were like, "This is nothing. <laughs> 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 this is uh, not so much." Where you know? did you move to the Bay Area from? Seattle? What was <laughs> uh, <laughs> Houston? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, not exactly great light. Right, right. Okay, here's another question in from one of my Facebook friends. This is uh, this is from a guy by the name of Ed Dillon. He says, is there a better time of the day to shoot the wildlife? And I assume he means photograph. Oh, yeah. For me, it's the I think mornings are infinitely more productive for me okay. than, the, than the afternoons. Okay, so shoot in the mornings. Right. Well, but, you know, landscapes, it doesn't matter, I'd say, as much. But um, there, there's definitely a quality, quality of light difference in the mornings than the, than the, than the afternoons, uh, especially for landscape like higher altitude photography. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Howard Simpson says, what's Andy's best camera setup, body lens um, combination when he's on the run and can't have everything? Is travel light, travel right, or not? Man, that's a really great question. <laughs> you know, being put on the spot is tough. You yeah. Know, because because if I if I only had one camera and one lens, I'm likely to choose something totally different, completely different. You know. Yeah. yeah. But well, you got to be a generalist at that point. You got to you got to get something that's going to be able to get uh, instead of getting one situation perfect, get a lot of situations okay. Right. Well, it's funny. I mean, you, you, I mean, well, funny, but but also depressing to think that you know. In this world that we live in, with this global, these idiots that are getting on planes with, with uh, you know, explosives between their, <laughs> between their thighs, between their nethers, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, suddenly I'm going to be taking a camera on one lens, you know, if yeah. I don't, you know, can't. But you know, I have to say that um, a really like on the Nikon system, I just like a D700 D3 with a with a 200 to 400 for yeah. wildlife. That's I couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you how do you think this the the you know with these with these terrorist threats and all this stuff that's happening? How is that going to affect you? You know, g- going back and forth and the gear that you need to take and all that stuff. Well, you know, people who travel are getting squinched on both sides. Here in North America and the U.S., the 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 the, the government saying, "Well, you can't lock your bags." Okay. Well, then that means as a photographer that I have to carry all my expensive and delicate equipment on board, right? But at the same time, a lot of overseas carriers are saying, hey, you can only carry 6 kilos or 10 kilos or 12 kilos, whatever it is, online. 
So you're getting squeezed from both sides. Um, so I just did something about it, and I decided to create my um, my Gura Gear company with our first product, the Kiboko bag. Because oh yeah, tell me about that. That's that's what I wanted to talk about. That uh, the the name of the company is Gura Gear. Yeah, G U R A G E A R GuraGear dot com, and and I just got tired of being squeezed on both sides. So rather than say, hey, I'm just not going to take this lens or that camera or more than one lens and more than one camera, I'd rather just make the bag lighter. I mean, that's pretty easy. Yeah. So I thought it was going to be easy. It took a long time. It took me two and a half years to develop the bag. But um, so I took what were my competitors are all seven, eight to 12 or 13 pounds. I came in at four pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. So w- rather than just, you know, trying to modify your behavior, why not just buy a different bag? <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. So so talk about the bag a little bit. So what what is cool about the bag? Because I've heard about it before and I know people want them. What's What's the magic thing about it? Well, the magic thing is figuring out a way to make a bag lighter without giving up features and functionality. And that, that's the hardest part. And so we finally found a fabric that allows us to do that. It's, it's basically a sailcloth-like material. And I say like material because it's made from a sailcloth company. They just happen to make a sailcloth a little bit heavier duty for like our type purposes. So it weighs a third of what something like a, a, another competitor's bag might be made out of yeah. their fabric mm-hmm. um but it it actually has more abrasion resistance so it's it's actually more durable and it weighs less and the second thing that makes the bag very different is it's got a harness system that completely hides away so if you don't want it to be a backpack you just zip away the 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 straps and you're done and it just hides away and then the third thing is it's, it's pretty noticeable that makes it different, and it's, it's a butterfly design, meaning that if you happen to have a lot of gear and, and probably one or two really large lenses, you can put the lens onto the side of the bag on one side and then keep other gear on the other side because the challenge with something like a Low Pro or some of these other traditional bag manufacturers, if you have a big lens, they just automatically assume you put it down the middle and everything else has to squeeze around it. Yeah. Now, that drives me crazy because I like to work out of my bag, and I, I travel with all of my lenses and cameras detached. I get to my location, I take out a couple dividers, and I actually attach cameras to lenses so I can shoot out of the bag. I just quickly open it, grab a camera, shoot. And it allows me to do that if I move the big lens over to one side of the bag. Gotcha. Yeah, so I just I got tired of that. And so we're coming out with new products in 2010 that kind of are on the – on the same theme of of, of identifying um, a mousetrap that needs to be better made or better designed. That's great. That uh, you just answered a question for an, from a, another Twitter guy. Uh, Sean Phillips says, "Are there going to be any other bags in the Gara Gear lineup?" So there are, but I can't say what they'll be or when they'll be out because the let me tell you the prototype process takes forever. But I think in the end, I'm happier with the results. Um, like our original Kiboko bag, I think I went through seven prototypes, you know, and, and every time you make a prototype, you have to send it to, you know, half a dozen of your photo buddies that work in the industry to, to knock it around and find all the faults. Yep. 
Yeah. Hey, next I, time you need a tester, um, I'm raising my hand. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're on. You're on. All right. Elias Danner says, has Andy ever climbed Kilimanjaro in Tanzania? I, uh, I'd love to know if that's possible for the average person or photographer. Yeah. Are you? Well. Define average. Well, let's just say that I'm uh, not in shape like I should be. But yeah, I climbed Kilimanjaro back in 2002. And my wife, my sister, and her husband and I did it. And unfortunately, I did not make it to the top because I had brought over with me from London a wonderful flu bug. So oh, I, no. I was suffering from the flu on the mountain. But I will, I will characterize Kilimanjaro as being a long trek that is not particularly difficult. It will reward the people who are good at elevation and it will punish the people who do, who do not do well at elevation. Okay? It will punish the smokers, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm not a smoker. Well, an occasional cigar, but but yeah. but the uh, but Kilimanjaro is a fun, enjoyable experience that you cannot do quickly. There are some people that claim they could do it in five or six days. That's really not the smartest because you need to acclimatize. Yeah. Um, the mountain is nineteen thousand three hundred and forty feet. Tall. Wow. And for, yeah. for reference, a mile high is 5,300 feet, right? Roughly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, 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 a, it's a high up mountain. So I made it to the last camp, which was at about 15.5, uh, something like that, and, and just didn't get up at midnight to go do the final hike. I, I wish that I would have, but I will say that my wife wants to do another attempt on her 40th birthday in a couple years, and I'm game. That's great. Okay, so you've got a lot of stuff going on. You got the the safaris, you got the the bag company, two kids and a wife and all this stuff. <laughs> what's what's next for you? What's what's next on the on the Andy Biggs agenda? That's really a good question. My assistant says that I need to be publishing. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but I, I have no time. I honestly have no time because I also do um color consulting for Moab Paper. Oh, wow. So I build a bunch of profiles, and I have all the latest printing technologies here in the studio. I'm, I've got so many printers, I, I, don't, I can't even count them. <laughs> I mean, I've got three 44-inch wide-format printers in view right now. So, wow. um, you know, what's next? I don't know. You know, I, I, I want to travel less and spend more time with the family or get the kids old enough. Not that I can change that right now, but <laughs> get them to where they can travel with, with me because ultimately – in five or plus years, I want them on safari with me and for me to not change my travel schedule but maybe just change um, the, the amount of workshops that I lead. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to uh, to chat with me for the show. This has been very informative and we've uh, answered a bunch of the Flickr questions or Twitter questions actually. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was Andy Biggs. If you want to find out more about him, just click on the link in the show notes to check out his website and blog. And definitely check out those bags he was talking about because uh, there are some pretty interesting ones and hopefully are pretty nice bags, well-designed, and uh, hopefully I will be getting one in the mail soon. I can say that they're well-designed because everybody that I've spoken to about them has been raving about them. Um, and I'll be able to speak, hopefully, Andy, if you're listening to this, about them in person. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. With that, let's jump over into uh, the picks of the week. Nicole, since you haven't been on the show all year, I'm going to let you go first. What's your, what's right. your pick of the week? I, I have two. Is that okay? Go for it. All right. Well, my first one 
is a book. It's called U.S. Highway 89. It's by a local Utah photographer named Ann Torrance, and she's also a friend of mine. But the reason I picked this is because she's a photographer, and she just has a really huge passion for it. And she also has a passion for the Highway 89, which runs north-south uh, right through Utah. And uh, she, you know, she took that passion, and she just wrote a really amazing book about that. And uh, took her several years, and it's just kind of it's kind of a feel good pick, I guess, you know, because, uh, it's, it's a really great book and I highly recommend looking it up. You can see it on Amazon, but, um, some really great photography, really awesome writing. And I think it was just really great that she took what she loves and she did something about it and published a book. So, so that's my first pick. And, uh, my second pick is, I guess, more of a geeky one. It's a photography gear. It's a website called custom brackets. And, uh, what these are, are these, these are things that you can like put on tripods uh, you don't have to put it on a tripod, but you basically sit sit your camera inside of it, and you can mount a flash on the top of the bracket, or you can get rotating brackets that allow you to turn your camera vertical, horizontally. Um, it's kind of hard to explain. Uh, I'd recommend going to the website. It's uh, custombrackets.com, but it's really helpful. I've been using it a lot. I have b- actually been borrowing one because I don't have my own yet from a friend. Uh, I've been using it for my food photography because it allows me to set my camera up and I have a video head so it really only goes uh, forward and back and then uh, you know spins around left to right so I can't switch it to vertical if I need to but this allows so this allows me to set it on my tripod and then you know set up my shot and then I can just flip it straight to vertical maybe reposition you know really small increments and then take a picture right away so it's it's kind of like it's kind of like if you understand what like an L bracket is it's it's kind of like that but it's better yeah it's (laughs) got like an articulated platform in there so when you Mm -hmm. rotate it the front of the lens stays in the same spot as you as you go from vertical to horizontal it's really I this is like the ones with the flash I highly recommend if you do any kind of event or wedding photography because you're going to keep your flash on top and you're not you know sometimes if you have your flash sitting on your camera you twist it vertically then your flash is going to be shooting the person from the side and you get those funny side shadows if you got a wall behind them so you're always going to keep your flash in the same spot and on the on the the better axis with your lens cool all right thanks nicole ron brinkman what's your what's your pick of the week so you know i i very often am carrying a couple of cameras around uh i'll have my my dslr and i'll have my little point and shoot and then uh sometimes i'll be you know, traveling somewhere and I'll have a friend that's also taking some pictures and at some point when it all said and done you get back and you want to start organizing these things and you got a bunch of photos that maybe are not synchronized with, in terms of the date that they were shot it's not I, I've been pretty good about it lately making sure that my camera my two cameras are synchronized in terms of the actual time setting on them but sometimes they get off offset and certainly if you're you got a friend that's shooting some photos too uh, it's not uncommon to have these dates offset. And then you bring those into a program like Aperture, and they display them by when they were taken, and they're, they're, you know, they're not grouped the way you expect them to be. So there's this cool little utility called Shoot Shifter. Uh, free app runs on the Mac, and it basically lets you drag in a bunch of different photos from different sessions and different cameras, and then does things to help synchronize them. So it'll, you, know, you can say, all right, this is the master one. I want to time sync these other ones to this so that they all are shot. And you can sort of drag them and get them to the right place where they are correctly synchronized in time. And then you can also go back and rename all your files to synchronize them. So they're named consistently. It's just really kind of a handy thing that even if you are using some tool like Aperture Lightroom to kind of organize your photos, uh, I really like to have the photos themselves that are sitting on disk, you know, pre-organization be as accurate as possible. So like I said, it's called Shoot Shifter Free. Just, uh, just Google Shoot Shifter. 
uh, and we'll put it on the website, but it's pretty handy. There's all these creative names. I love that. Shoot Shifter. Mm-hmm. All right. Alex Lindsay, what's your pick? So uh, I'm picking a, uh, an iPhone app, and, uh, and it is uh, – this is a um, – by Richard Harrington, who's sitting in our office right now. So, uh, <laughs> twittering, by the way. He's twittering away, uh, <laughs> and it's called Understanding Photoshop. And so this is a – it's a great little application um, that you can – you know, a lot of us are – especially photographers. I mean, you, you've been doing photography. I know, like, my sister does a lot of photography, but Photoshop is still something new, and a lot of the basic corrections are still stuff she's learning. And, um, and putting together there. And so uh, it's a great little application to just get great uh, tips on color adjustments, exposure adjustments, uh, uh, you know, so on and so forth. The, the, the thing that's really interesting about this understanding Photoshop quick fixes is that this is going to be a huge deal after Wednesday. I think, I think this kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, Richard's sitting there going, yes, yes, it is. You know, you know, so, the videos so, in the app are already in high def waiting. Yeah, okay. the videos in the application are already waiting in a high def, Richard tells us. And, and the thing is, is that this is the kind of stuff we're going to see a lot more of as we get to a tablet. Uh-huh. So this is this is more than just a manual. It's it's got embedded videos as embedded, part of the application. Yeah. Embedded yeah. videos. Um, okay. It, yeah. So it's more than a manual. It is really uh, little video tutorials on how to do that. But it's all in one place. It's all an app. You're not trying to figure out how to do it with your iPhone. Yeah. You know, it's all it's much better organized. Yeah, than it's really cool. I mean, I li- I like it because it's like, you know, Lynda.com and those sort of things. Those those sorts of sites are great. If you're at your computer, but what if you're at the car wash and you're just got you know, or in the doctor's office and you just want to like, oh, I could I could learn how to create an alpha channel or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, right from right from the app in your hand. And yeah. it's it's uh, it's surprisingly useful. And you think that okay, well, there's this giant screen capture. How am I ever going to see anything on this little tiny screen? They've captured it in such a way to, so that you actually can see what's happening, and they're zooming in on the pertinent areas so that you can get the gist and really see what's happening and get, get the most out of the tutorial. And again, I think the, the big boom is going to be when we, you know, this is, this is, it's, it's, it's great on the iPhone. It's going to be better on the tablet when it comes out. Um, yeah. Whenever they start shipping them. Yep. And Richard just whispered in my ear that they dropped the price this week to 99 cents from two ninety nine. So it's uh, 99 cents. 66% off. <laughs> see how fast I did that math? <laughs> my, my little, my old. You're, I saw you count on your fingers though. I was like going one, two, three, four, <laughs> six. What is one minus three? So two, ninety-nine cents this week. What's that? Through what day? Uh, I had through February first. Through February first. So only one week. Only one week. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So whenever this goes out. So my pick is also it's all about learning because I know in my bones that that Lightroom three has to be imminent because it's been in beta forever. So I feel that it's coming out soon. Um, the uh, the folks over at photoshopuser.com have a training site out uh, up there for Lightroom 3. So at photoshopuser.com forward slash Lightroom 3, there's all the tutorials that you'd ever need on the beta up there right now, which I would presume will switch to be uh, tutorials on the full version of Lightroom whenever that becomes available. So definitely head over there and bookmark that. And when the new version hits, go back there and check out that stuff because... You know, why not? If you want to learn what the new features are and you don't want to sit, you know, just go through all the, the marketing stuff that, you know, I used to be involved with, you can just head <laughs> over there. You can head over there and uh, go through it and have those folks at Photoshop User TV or Photoshop User take you through exactly what's happening. So that is my pick. All right, we're, the train is coming into the station. Beep, like, beep. The train is pulling into the station. Nicole. Mm-hmm. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you and see your fabulous work? Well, you can go to my blog. It's nicolzyblog.com. 
blog.com. Nicole is N-I-C-O-L-E-S-Y blog.com. And then you can find me on the Twitters at Nicole Z. Nicole Z. And Ron Brinkman, where are you? Oh, just come follow me on Twitter, Ron Brinkman. Wow, you no longer two ends. Yeah, with two ends. You're no, no longer giving your your blog out. I, well, I just haven't I haven't put anything new up on the blog. I, uh, I have the same problem. In, in 2010 yet, so. Oh, so you have a cobweb blog. Uh, pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> it's cob. <laughs> yep. All right, Alex cob Lindsay. Alex, where are you at? I'm on the Twitters. Twitters at Alex's? All one word. And just a couple of housekeeping things for the show. If, um... For the the blog for this week in photography is twithlog.com. So be sure to head over there to check out the stuff that's posted there. Um, the latest post is about a workshop that Joseph Lenaski, one of the co-hosts of the show, and I are giving in February. So please head over there to check out what the details of that is or are. And um, for the TWIP audience, we're giving a little discount code out. So if you enter the code TWIP when you sign up for the workshop, it'll I think it'll knock 200 bucks off your uh, the workshop fee. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash This Week in Photography is our Facebook fan page. So head over there to keep up with us and see some pretty pictures of all the hosts, including Ron Brinkman. Yeah, we're, we're changing that picture, aren't we? <laughs> That's Ron's, uh, you know, match.com picture up there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then um, also we're on Flickr, of course, our Flickr group, which is lively and exciting. Flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash TWIP. And then for me, if you're looking for me, of course, you can find me at frederickvan.com. By the way, for uh, on the last show, we talked a little bit about Haiti and some of the sensitivities around what do you bring with you when you, if you're going to go to, if you're a photographer going to Haiti or any place that's in distress, what do you bring with you in order to not be a burden on that particular place so that you can get your job done, which is a photographer, or, you know, taking photos? So on my blog, I wrote a post called um, Fight or Light, which was taking another tack at that question, saying, if you're in a position where uh, someone's in distress and you're a photographer, what do you do first? Do you take the picture or do you help the person? And it's, there's been a surprising number of comments on that. I mean, people are really passionate about, you know, either, hey, you're a photographer, take the shot, and then help the person, or you're a human first, help the person, then take the shot. So I would love to hear what the This Week of Photography audience thinks about that. Just head over to my blog at frederickvan.com and uh, look for one of the last posts um, that's up there. It's called Fight or Light, or you can find me on Frederick Van on Twitter. And with that... What's the time? What time is it? It's time to go out there, get that, take that thing off that. That's not the time. It's time to take that lens cap off. Mm-hmm.